Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief of Modern Retail, and this week I'm joined by Debbie Way Mullen, the founder and CEO of Copper Cow Coffee. And I love coffee. I used to actually work in coffee, a little-known fact about me, and is always interested in the business of coffee. I'm really excited for this conversation, but Debbie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk about coffee with you today. <laughs> Great. Um, so for those who don't know, why don't you just give a little rundown? What's the what's the history of Copper Cow? How did it start? So Copper Cow Coffee, we've been shipping product for about four years now, um, about five years since I really dove full time into doing this. And it was born because first when I was, the way that I describe it is kind of when I was little, I grew up in California, but in a Vietnamese American household and grew up with pretty much just Vietnamese food at home. And when I began to get old enough to the point where I saw that people were unfamiliar with the food and cuisine and flavors that I had grown up with, um, I just really felt felt very bad for everybody. <laughs> and also was kind of would joke with my family, like, we're sitting on a gold mine. If we could just show people all of these flavors, it would be such an amazing opportunity um, to kind of mainstream this and introduce America to them. And fast forward many years later, I also kind of, had this passion around wanting to work in sustainability. So once I was able to, as a teenager, go to Vietnam to where my mother was from and and see kind of the where she had grown up and how difficult it was for her to find opportunities that were were good for her and good for her country, the idea of being able to to be involved in creating sustainable economic development in the region and in the country was really important to me. So I first had a career at the World Bank and just, you know, really didn't uh, fit well with uh, a large organization and was kind of thinking that I wanted to do something that was much more entrepreneurial, something that was much more creative, much more fast paced, and kind of revisited that that old passion around these flavors. And once I began to learn about the Vietnamese coffee um world, that's when I began to really get, uh, I, I think it just kind of, it's almost like I blacked out and then like now it's five years <laughs> later and I'm still doing it. Um, Cause it was, it's just been so exciting to be able to kind of see what's happening in the space and being able to introduce that to the U S. So, so today we're, we're the first premium Vietnamese um, coffee company in the U S. I feel like a lot of new coffee companies all have a very similar idea and branding, and it's uh, it's not what you're doing, which I think is very, very smart. I, I feel like they have go for a certain type of consumer, and they all are going for the same way, but yours is much more of a, a full product. It's Vietnamese coffee. People can get the um, creamer, if I'm not mistaken. And so can yes. you talk about sort of how you... A, like for those who don't like describe what the overall product is, what Vietnamese coffee means, and then B, how you sort of th- conceptualize the entire product so that it would be different from other coffee companies. Right. So I think that something that I really saw missing from the space of both specialty coffee was something that made specialty coffee a little bit more accessible. Because I think I think I totally agree with you that like a lot of the brands that I came of age with as a coffee nerd um, are 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 really as- are super aspirational. They assume that you that you have time and energy to do tons of research, whether that's around the way that you're going to be brewing it or or the way that you select your coffee. Um, and I think that people love participating in that that level of quality of product, but I don't know if they really have time to actually put in the effort to brewing it that way and all the research involved. So I think how do we make something that's a little bit more accessible was something that I was really excited about that was that was more playful around how you experience specialty coffee. And then on the other side of that was, you know, 
one of the main things I saw as an issue with people enjoying Vietnamese inspired products was just, you know, kind of the way that it was made, again, an accessibility thing around it being intimidating. Things weren't in the language that they were used to. It wasn't communicated how to make it. You know, it, it had, it used to have this like own contraption that you had to buy, um, that you had to learn how to make and invest in. And I think that how, I, I wanted to kind of break away those barriers. And so having this all-in-one um, solution was what I thought was going to be a real game changer, which it has been for us. So we we package all of our organic Vietnamese coffee into pre-filled single-serve filters that will just open up over any cup to make a perfect pour-over coffee. So you don't need additional equipment. You just need hot water. And then we also provide creamer, which is something that's really unique, but kind of interesting that 70% of Americans drink their coffee with cream and sugar and we just provide that full three like full experience which is what you would have it for instance when you buy a latte you know that you you aren't asking for a specific amount of milk that your barista is kind of choosing that for you and and, and making it mm-hmm. for you and that's that's what we do here at Copper Cow how would you describe the target end user of cuz of of Copper Cow like cuz i think the an individual pour over is such a fascinating idea i imagine that probably coffee geeks might not necessarily be interested in that because they have their, you know, $600 grinder or something like that. So Exactly. And, and so did you do research before you you made the, the product sort of a, a minimum viable product or did you have this idea in mind for exactly how this would work? Well, I knew, so this was, when I first discovered the format, this was a little over five years ago. So, you know, pour over was really trending in like the super nerd, like coffee nerd space, right? So you see it now at like mainstream roasters and stuff, but but back then it was really just for like the ultimate coffee nerd. But then uh, as a funny backstory, as I always joke that my dad is like the original hipster. He just, (laughs) he had a pour over every day of my whole life growing up. He's, he grew up in Silver Lake too, you know, before it was cool. Like I wow, always yeah. He, <laughs> he really you know, is. <laughs> he, he truly is. Um, and so he, I, I was really familiar with the format. So when I saw that, I was like, I know that's going to be an amazing expression of the coffee and it's just such an easier way to do it. And so I, I, I was really excited by that. Um, but with, but I also knew that, you know, the, the market talking to people, I knew people at Blue Bottle, for instance, who were really trying to expand their CPG line, expand their direct to consumer line, and knew that like the market for people who are going to to invest $600 in equipment, who are going to spend nine to 12 minutes on a pour over in the morning is actually a pretty small market. Um, and I think that that was something that I knew I wasn't trying to address. I was trying to make that that person who more so, you know, once I began to go into the coffee space, I, I realized that there's such a large number of people who drink specialty coffee every day. It's just that they're going to a cafe to do it. And they're a little intimidated to make it at home. So how do you, how, how like the fact that, you know, over 60% of the market at that point, at that time was specialty coffee, but not primarily drink in the home. Like, how did you make an experience like that really accessible was kind of the inspiration for, for, of, for the customer we, we go after. So it's somebody who is ordering um, a pour over at a cafe. They're ordering a latte at a cafe. They're really excited. They have their their favorite things that they order, but they're just a little intimidated at home. And this is a perfect, perfect format for them. So, and, and it also is typically a millennial female. That's the other thing that's different about us is that most third wave coffee companies really kind of have an industrial kind of masculine feel to them. I think that they really go after a certain demographic that's more of that um, like 
hipster male in their 30s. And really, like, our customer's a millennial female. She loves flavors. She loves a better-for-you treat, you know. Um, and I think that that's something that's been also a p- pretty big breakthrough for us because women love specialty coffee, too. I think that's fascinating and makes a lot of sense. I agree. Like, specialty coffee is very, very male-oriented, specifically in yes. its branding. Um, and, like, going for people like me, I guess, you know, people who, like, you know, in their 20s totally. worked at a coffee shop and then, like, got into the gear or something like that. But was this something you realized after the fact when you launched that, like, we have a coffee company that is appealing more to a millennial female? Was this something that you set out to from the get-go and that you branded accordingly? Walk me through that. So originally, we I knew that I wanted it to be really accessible. I knew I wanted it to be able to go beyond that coffee nerd, you know, something that that was for somebody who had experienced specialty coffee, had a palate for wanting something that was as smooth and, and well-tasting as what we have, but, you know, that maybe isn't the person who's done all the research and spending, investing all that time. And just, I think it took a little time for us to realize who she was. So, and I would even say that, you know, being in the coffee space, Vietnam is really new to the specialty coffee scene. And because of that, you know, being stuck in that world of, of coffee, I assume that everybody was coming from that perspective that they would say, oh, Vietnamese coffee is that high-end coffee. I, I don't, I haven't experienced that before. But instead, I didn't realize that I was actually meeting people in a place where it was, what is Vietnamese coffee? I've never even heard of it. Um, so I think that I did try to really emulate those brands, those, uh, a lot of the brands that I loved, you know, Blue Bottle, Intelligentsia, um, Phil's, like these like kind of more male, masculine leaning or at least androgynous brands. And, um, you know, I think that it, it, it really quickly changed once we decided what's our next product going to be. We built the business to a million dollars in revenue with just one product and we knew we wanted to have another product. So what's the second product going to be? And, you know, we're sitting there and we're a room full of women <laughs> and every day we were putting lavender in our coffee <laughs> in the pour overs and we were like, it should be this lavender latte. And then I was like, I don't know, we have this really, it's kind of funny for it to be a lavender latte when it's this kind of industrial feeling brand. And then we, we, we launched it. We had these really colorful ads. We had, you know, had a totally different kind of brand and feel to that product. And that was when things really kind of took off. Um, and that we, we really leaned into that. We were saying like, look at, let's build products for ourselves. We love coffee. We love specialty coffee. Um, how do we pr- create products and a brand feel that's for us? So I want to get into that um, because you're the, Sort of the history of the business channels you've used is really interesting because, correct me if I'm wrong, but your first year you got pretty major retail distribution. Yes. But you've also been growing a DTC business at the same time. Um, And I imagine that, maybe I'm wrong, but like a, a, a product like a lavender line, I imagine probably works, does gangbusters for a DTC line because you know exactly who your customer is and you can target them. So can you just walk me through sort of how has your, how have your sales channels changed over the last five years? Where have you been focusing it? Where is it now? And I'm, I'm sure the pandemic has completely thrown everything for a loop in terms of that, but like sort of where, how does that work specifically as you're expanding product lines? Totally. So, so like I said, for the first two years of the business, we just had that one product, um, you know, the, the, classic coffee with the classic creamer. And what was so interesting was that it was so easy to get into stores. And that's one of the reasons why we took those opportunities, because we just brought a prototype to the fancy food show with the intention of that being just some feedback that we, but we would really be selling D to C, but we just got into so many stores. When, when somebody who's in the coffee space tries our product, especially in, for in, in, if they're a grocery buyer or someone who's buying CPG coffee, 
they get, they're, they're pretty blown away by the innovation in the space. And they're like, I would love to have this in my store because I don't have anything like it. And it's going to make my section look better. Um, cause we, we do have such an emphasis, emphasis on design and packaging. Um, and so I think that that's been, it was surprising how easy it was to get into major retailers like Williams Sonoma, gro- major grocery stores. Um, you know, uh, a lot of department stores was a huge part of our business because we, uh, we are able to pepper, um, you know, different types of displays and make them look really fun and have like fun grab and go items um, in there up up through the pandemic. Um, so for the first two years of the business, we were 90% wholesale. So d- accounts like that. And then 10% was just organic e-commerce with that one product. Um, when we were able to finally branch out into more products, um, like the lavender latte was the first SKU that we added um, and we also were able to raise venture funding, which gave us enough budget to both grow the wholesale business, but also begin to really invest in a D2C business. Um, so I think that th- those were the things that w- it was really exciting to be able to invest in that, as well as a third channel, which is uh, is uh, not active currently, which is um, selling into hotels, um, which oh, was yeah. a very exciting, <laughs> very exciting growing part <laughs> of the business until um, until uh, the pandemic hit. But um, but the but so in the in the third year of the business, we were 50-50. We were 50% wholesale, 50% D2C, because it's like once you turned it on, it was like overnight because as much as it's been really great to for a, a coffee buyer to see what's so awesome, it's really hard to get when you're a completely new format, a completely new brand, to sit on a crowded shelf and be able to win is really difficult when there's so much education involved in like who who we are, what our product is. And so obviously direct-to-consumer is a huge opportunity for that. And so pretty much overnight, um, things kind of took off so that within a year we were 50-50 and, and um, last year and today we're 80% D to C and 20% wholesale, but but that is that wholesale business has continued to grow. It's just that that um, D to C can outpace it so much more quickly. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. Please stay with us. So do you find that they are different customers, your wholesale and your DTC? I imagine for a product like yours, someone in a store might say, that will be fun. I'll, you know, take that down, maybe use it a couple of times a month. But maybe someone on DTC would say, you know, they can join a subscription plan or something like that. Do you do you think of them differently or are you trying to get people from retail to go onto your website and buy? We don't think of them differently. We think of them as overlapping. You know, we think that there are people who are going to strongly prefer to buy online. There's going to be people who will only buy us in stores. And we know, but we think that they actually overlap quite a bit. And, and, and we found that when we survey our customers, when we survey our even a year, let's see, when did we first start this question? Um, over a year ago, we, we asked our, our D2C customers, do you, have you ever bought us in stores? And over 60% of them said they had. So people really have an omni-channel, you know, desire for Copper Cow. And I think that there's, there's times where you want to just be throwing it in your cart or you want to be able to run to the store and get it that day. And I think that there are times where you're like, this is really great to have on, on subscriptions that I can like enjoy it every day or every weekend or, you know, so I think, or I want to buy, a bunch for a gift for somebody across the country. So I think that there's different use cases that it should fit where they want to. Because as much as I, I love, of course, someone buying directly from me, because then I can know so much about what they what they like. They can give me direct feedback. There's so much great stuff about that. Um, I want to I want to be where my customer is, and and I know that like as much as I love a lot of the products I buy, I do buy them from grocery stores. I don't I don't go to every single CPG brand that I love and go and shop forty dollars at a time with them, you know, so I think that having a mix is really, really important for our product type. 
how did this all get or did it all get thrown for a loop during the pandemic? I feel like if especially if you rely or used department stores, a lot of department stores closed. So what's what, <laughs> yes. what were the dynamic shifts uh, about yeah. a year ago? So, so overnight. Oh, so so we had we had a pretty uh, overnight. We had like, I think about 50 percent of our wholesale sales was in department stores pre-COVID. Oh, wow. um, and so and, and, and it's such a great it's a, it, for those of you who are interested in, in selling in that kind of channel. I mean, it's it's such an interesting channel compared to grocery stores where there's a lot of distribution demands that are very expensive around working with with distributors paying a lot of like slotting or merchandising fees. There's, there's actually like, it can, it's such a powerful channel, but it's very expensive versus department stores were amazing. It was premium placements paid fully. There's no fees. I mean, it was such a great revenue stream when you're first starting out. Um, But again, like the potential of that is not the same as being like your weekly coffee buy. Um, So while we, we were really, it was really, you know, tragic in, in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, it's like we had purchase orders that were like, sitting on the dock that were just like get, when we were getting calls from from major accounts just saying we're not picking that up sorry like it's like we're and we are on pause with new orders indefinitely um and just being um kind of really stressed about that channel but then on the upside of that you know, we were really lucky that we had just gotten into Sprouts in March 2020 in all their stores. Um, we had just gotten an expansion into um, three regions of Whole Foods. We had um, expanded our, our footprint in Walmart. We had had some strategic accounts in the grocery side expand just in time. And our wholesale sales grew immensely, um, even even with the, the the department stores falling off, just because the grocery opportunity suddenly became much larger. And what's really crazy is that they've sustained ever since. Wow. Um, so even though department stores fell off and they used to be 50%, the overall like top line number grew much larger, um, with even with those accounts falling off. So what I'm fascinated about is those are all huge accounts, but you said you're 80-20 right now with 80% online, 20% wholesale. Is that correct? Yes. Or, yes. Um, and so how are you, what is, is that all organic? What is your marketing? How are you getting these e-com, uh, these e-com sales? Um, well, primarily through paid, paid advertising. So we put digital ads out there. Um, we have, we're, we're, of course, I think that everything that all D2C companies are talking about are new ways to acquire customers, considering that a lot of the major channels are quite volatile. But, um, but, you know, I think that because we have such good product market fit, um, and, and that our, our, our product line continues to kind of even capitalize on that more, um, we have found it to be a, a really great way for us to grow very, very efficiently still today. What can you talk to me sort of like types of marketing you do? I imagine that maybe I'm wrong, but product like yours would probably do well on a more experimental line like TikTok. I feel like it's a very visual product. Have you have you done anything like that before or not yet? <laughs> It's so interesting. I think that we're still trying to unlock TikTok. I mean, we just we just started to really expand our marketing team, you know, until mm-hmm. until throughout 2020, I mean, we were growing so fast with like a three-person marketing team. It was just wow. a director of digital marketing and a graphic designer and a junior marketer, and they they just were an incredible powerhouse, but being able to really expand beyond our core channel, which was honestly like the bulk of our of our customers come from Instagram. 
Um, so being able to really expand beyond that um, is something that, you know, you have to create different creative for TikTok. A polished, curated, you know, Instagram ad is not going to be the same thing that you would have on TikTok. So I think being able to invest creatively is, is a huge part of the next step of Copper Cow so that we can move beyond some of the core channels. Because um, today that's still one of the main things we do. And also um, and traditional press is a big thing because we do have such a unique product and brand story. Um, we it, we have been really lucky and fortunate to to have a lot of press interest in what we're doing. So that's another another big driver of the brand. You were also on Shark Tank, is that correct? We were. We just we just so, were on a few weeks ago. <laughs> oh, it was just a few. Wait, it was just a few weeks ago. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, so yeah. T- what is the shark? I've always heard about the Shark Tank effect. Is it real? Talk to me about the Shark Tank effect. If it, if it's yeah, real. the the Shark Tank effect is real. Um, I think, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it, it's so funny though because we we filmed it last year. Like like you know. Oh it was, wow. We filmed it because um, it's so funny because I was six months pregnant when we filmed it. And it was a year ago, so then everybody was like calling me, being like, "You're pregnant again," and I was like, "No, it's, it's a, it's a, it's the same baby." Just because we were on the season finale, so it was like it, 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 it just was like the timing. Um, it's, yeah. you know, it's a seven month season, so it just ended up being at the end. Um, so we were on the season finale of Shark Tank, and I think being able to be like a consumable. Um, like with a, with an accessible price point makes it particularly exciting for a Shark Tank viewer so that they can really participate in the brand when they see um, the entrepreneur <laughs> kind of put themselves out there. Um, but yeah, it's it's been it's been really great for the business. It's been like I mean, obviously we're still just a few weeks into the effect, but it seems like a a, a great and meaningful effect to the business for sure in terms of getting new customers. But it's funny just to see how like even the the product mix of what's bought is a little different than our typical demographic because the Shark Tank demographic is not, you know, obviously one-to-one with who we would normally sell to. Like, you know, it's it's, it's a little bit of an older demographic. So, um, you know, we, we we rarely, we don't sell that much decaf, for instance, but we saw like a huge spike in people wanting to buy decaf <laughs> or, you know, like these things that like you don't normally see. But with, uh, so the Shark Tank effect is real. I think we're, we're, we're curious to see how it feels six months from now. Yeah, I'd be interested to know. And like, maybe you'll see a big influx of decaf subscriptions or something like that, which I imagine you exactly. have been putting the gas on. Like, yeah. Given that the pandemic's not over yet, but I feel like a lot of the dynamics are sort of mellowing out. And so yes. can you talk to me just sort of how you're approaching the following year in terms of your, your channel mix? Are you going to continue just focusing a lot on your direct channels? Do you have any more ambitions on on the wholesale side of things? What, what is sort of your goal specifically in terms of the um, the percentage mix? Um, I think that we, I love this percentage mix because I think that what's interesting about when you sell <laughs> directly to a customer, you get 100% of the the revenue, right? Even though you have to pay for advertising and stuff to be able to find them, you get 100% of the revenue. So even though 80% of our revenue comes from D2C, we're actually still shipping like a lot of product to the wholesalers, even though it only represents 20% of our revenue. Um, so I do think that re- like getting there, we have a few key accounts in the pipeline that we're super excited about um, that I know our customer loves that we're, we can't wait to be a part of later this year. So I think that's something that we're really excited about, um, especially to be finally like national with some some key accounts so that it's not just like we're in some regions or we're in select stores that we're in every single one will be really exciting for us. And then on the D to C side, though, I mean, it's just the the number one place for us to be able to really form community and to be able to experiment with our products. So we're excited to be launching some new products um, to be able to try out a lot of new exciting flavors and be able to have that subscriber, um, you know, clientele really interact with that is something that we can't wait for. So what are the new flavors? 
Let's see. So we were so excited to this past quarter because I, I think for me, it's like I just love geeking out on the really crazy flavors like a rosemary latte or a lavender <laughs> latte. But it's, you know, the power of a salted caramel or a vanilla latte to the business <laughs> is obviously much larger. Um, so I think we've got some fun things in the mix there for some more mainstream flavors to come out. But something that I'm excited about is that we're going to be coming out with um a uh, an Earl Grey coffee, which I'm excited about. So there'll be like an actual like bergamot based like Earl Grey mixed into the coffee, so that it's going to have that really fun kind of London Fog inspiration to it. Um, so I think that's something that I'm excited about for this fall. How are you approaching department stores in the in the future? Given that I, they, I'm not going to say they screwed you over, but you definitely had some issues, and they had some issues themselves. But I imagine there's still a really interesting place to, to have your product in. Are you are are those opening back up? Are you seeking out more of those partners or what what's going on on that line? You know, I don't I don't see that being a core part of the business again. Um I think that in addition to just the fact that we're at a very different stage that it wouldn't be even the potential of it couldn't be as large compared to the the opportunities we have otherwise. We would love to work with them again, but I don't I don't know if that's the most realistic thing on either side and I would never say they screwed me over. They did the best thing for their own business. Um and I respect that and and you know, I think that like we we we're really lucky that we came out on the other side of the pandemic um and as a really viable business. And that's all we can all hope for ourselves. So I I would definitely never say that they screwed us over, but it just stopped being a key part of our business. One thing though, that I, I am very excited about post pandemic is the, the hotel route. I still know that this is an incredible fit for a premium in room coffee experience. And so for us, I think that it's just going to be that much easier to make as a great um, a great sales and marketing channel for us in the future because now there'll just be that much more you know product and brand knowledge and exposure so that someone wouldn't it was it's it's really challenging selling into hotels when someone's never heard of your brand or ever heard of your format. Um, and so for that starting place to be that much easier, I think I still think that that's a, a wonderful um, future for the company as well. So are you talking to hotels now? I, I It seems like Not travel yet. is already <laughs> popping off. Okay. I think they have to rebound a little bit for, before they're like, yeah, let's make sure we uh, elevate the coffee in the room. I think that they're just uh, just trying to get... I, I remember we did we do have hotels still reach out routinely, but it's it's kind of one of these things where like, is it worth our time right now? I remember was, we were talking to... Because we had just signed a big deal with Hilton right before the pandemic hit, which is like on ice mm-hmm. until further notice. And we've had a few accounts reach out to us, um, some big name hotels. And it's so interesting because I'm like, well, what's, what's, because we want to do the pricing based off of, you know, volume. And they're like, well, we're at 0% capacity right now. Like they would say things like that. (laughs) And so I was like, so then what's the sale opportunity? Doesn't sound like uh, there is one, but I think that they, like, they don't even know what to do with their time. Like they're just like beginning to research things. So so that's why we're, we're, we're not really focused on that today, but I, I know in the future it's I, I know that we will have amazing fit with that when the once the industry is rebounded. So I was listening to an earlier interview of yours. I think it was from 2019, and you mentioned that you know you were thinking about you know sort of event based or pop up. You know, maybe maybe a Copper Cow Cafe, and then of course I'm pretty sure that was pre pandemic. Is this something that you're thinking about doing again? Like are, like what are your thoughts on those sort of more experiential sort of activations? Um, that's something that I I 100% see in the Copper Cow five year plan. You know, I I I love the idea of being able of of what types of products and expressions of Vietnamese coffee we could make in a cafe setting is exceedingly exciting to me. Um, and so, and I do think that 
that coffee shops are a wonderful business model too. It's just a completely different business than what we have today. And so when we were when we were trying to have, we were actually trying to have a pop-up in, in Grand Central Market here down in LA and just beginning to scratch the surface of that, realizing how it would create, it would require to- hiring a totally different workforce, um, a very different business strategy. And so just being cognizant of like when we do it, that I wanted, I, I want it to be super successful and have the right people to do it as opposed to just us making a poor digital marketer, like figure out how to open up a, a cafe is not the best thing to, to try to do to somebody. Um, so I think that that's just to just, to just know that it's a, it's a great opportunity and something we definitely want to do down the line. It's just about the when um, is, is the most important part. I am nearly positive that many poor digital marketers have been given tasks like that. And I'm sure <laughs> the intended effects were not what they hoped, but um, and I'm, I'm sure excited. The pandemic, I yeah. Oh, I, said, I was just saying, I'm sure in the pandemic was also the opposite, like poor, like, you know, baristas or like store managers That's who like, were trying to like launch e-commerce stores who are like, I don't know what I'm doing. So for, for better or worse, I think there's, it's a, it's, it's a really different skill set, and, uh, and to be, to be really aware of that and to value that. Absolutely. All right. Well, Debbie, this is all the time we have. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.